Romans 1, 16 and 17. That's kind of our theme verse as we look at Luther's life. And uh, we want to look at the story behind the significance of the solas. Because rather than just diving in to five messages that are heavy on doctrine, I want to give you the story, the context, because theology is forged in life and in the struggles of life. And biblical theology answers real-life struggles. And there's no one person more than Martin Luther, truly, in church history that kind of embodies the struggle, the story, and the significance of the five solas. And so we've looked at his story uh, so far. And last week, or two weeks ago, we looked at a monk in search of salvation at the Dark Ages. And when I refer to the Dark Ages, it's that medieval time period that's dark, not so much because nothing was going on. It was dark because the light of the gospel had grown dim. It was dark because the traditions of men and the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church had begun to extinguish the light of the gospel. Now, God is sovereign and faithful, and he always has his remnant that's always living for him. The gospel was still being proclaimed, but truly, it was a spiritual dark age. And as a student lawyer, Luther encounters death. We, we talked about how he had a knife in his pocket, and that pocket cut a lethal artery in his leg. His friend left him bleeding to run for help, and Luther wonders if he's going to die. And he asks the question that was predominant on people's mind in that age, but it's also predominant in our age. And just because we live in a postmodern, secular age that's highly materialistic, highly hedonistic, and, and, and I worship at the idol of pleasure, doesn't mean people aren't asking this question. And so he has this second encounter with death, when he's walking home as a law student and lightning strikes him and he falls on the ground and he cries out to St. Anne, the patron saint of minors. His dad was a minor. And he says, if you'll save me, if you'll deliver me from death, I will become a monk. And he did live, not because of St. Anne, but because of God's merciful grace upon a sinner who had not yet accepted him. And he starts this search that really, uh, really encapsulates what the Reformation was about. What must I do to be saved? And so we saw that he went through and basically he's climbing the ladder of good works that Roman Catholicism said, climb this ladder of good works and you hopefully, you might be saved in the end. The problem is Luther climbs this ladder of good works and finds out that it's leaning against the wrong wall and the wall is beyond infinity and he could never do enough. Now, why I think this is so exciting to watch this is, one, it teaches you how Roman Catholicism, and it's not, we're not picking on Roman Catholicism, it's really any works religion, any religion that's really man-made religion that ends up adding man-made rules on top of God's revelation, any works religion is going to have a set of things that you must do. Islam does, Mormonism does, Jehovah Witness does, 
And to be quite honest, just like in Catholicism, which started out as a pure Christianity, we, even as evangelicals and as Baptists, can turn the true faith into a works religion. And that's why I like these questions, because really the questions are timeless. How, what must I do to be get, saved? Do I need to get more spiritual by setting myself apart from the bad guys to guys, uh, people that are better? Do I need to get more serious? Do I need to get more serious about my faith? Maybe I need to think about becoming a pastor or a missionary. Maybe that will help me get saved. Uh, For Luther, it was becoming a priest. Maybe I need to be more sorry for my sin, and I just need to punish myself more. And so he tried doing more penance. Maybe I need to visit really spiritual people. A lot of people, we have a lot of church hopping and shopping going on in American Christianity, and a lot of people are on a search to get more spiritual by thinking if I'm just around more spiritual people, then I'll be more spiritual. Two things about that. Wherever you go, you are there. Right? So wherever you go, you are there. The problem's in our heart more times than not. And our perception of spiritual people, when we get up close, what do we discover? Well, they're just like us, okay? And there are degrees of spirituality, but they're just like us, all right? And so he goes to uh, Rome, and, and it doesn't go well, okay? Maybe I need to go to seminary and study the Bible full time. But ultimately... The answer came when he studied Scripture. And so he was advised to study Scripture and become a, Bible, uh, become a professor of Bible. Now, the key here is not going to seminary or Bible college and becoming a, a, a Bible scholar. The key is an open Bible leads to open hearts. That's the key. The key is, is your Bible open? And if your Bible is open and you're sincerely letting God's grace and God's spirit be at work in your heart, it will open your, open your heart to see God for who he is. So for fo- over five years, he studies and teaches Psalms, Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. Okay, so if you want your world to be rocked a little bit, spend some time in those books. And if you are, uh, are enslaved and feel condemned by works religion, you study those books, you're going to see... The gospel, and that's what happens. Romans 1.17 is what sets him free, and he finally answers the question, what must I do to be saved? And to get the context, here it is. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But then it came in verse 17. For in it, in what? The gospel the righteousness is revealed uh, the righteousness of god is revealed from faith to faith as is written but the righteous shall live by faith what had what had bothered luther's conscience for all of his life really was the idea of the righteousness of god and his own sinfulness god was holy i am not what must i do to be saved what must i do to be forgiven And so when he would read the righteousness of God, all he would hear was a standard that I cannot attain. That's why he tried all those things, because he wanted to attain and become good enough to be accepted by God's righteousness. But as he meditated and as God's spirit and God's grace uh, worked on his heart, it revealed to his blind 
and de- blind eyes and his deaf ears and his dead heart, it revealed this truth that the righteousness of God is a standard, but it's also a gift. And you receive that gift by faith. Yes, you must be as good as God. But the good news is this. That God who says you must be as good as me has given you his goodness himself as a gift. And when he saw that, everything changed. Now, I have handouts here. Luther's conversion in his own words. We're not definite that it happened in 1517, but it certainly started the process. And don't be freaked out by that. Because everyone here who is a believer in Jesus Christ, there's a point in time where you've crossed from unbelief to belief. There's a point in time. You may not remember the date. You may not remember everything about it. But there's a time where you crossed over. Or at least there needs to be. But in that point of time, there's a process that leads up to that. And so Luther's process was that basically your whole life is leading you up to that point. And then there's a process where you, st- you start figuring out, oh, I think I got saved. I mean, you had that experience. In fact, uh, you know, many times you can't understand when you got saved until you're saved and you look back and you go, oh, now I see how God worked in the process. And so uh, we have this opportunity. So here's, here's the thing. Luther was taught and grew up Works religion says believe, believe in Jesus, believe in the Bible, but believe plus do what you must do to be saved. And in Romans 1.17 in the gospel, Luther realized the gospel says, not the works religion, not the Roman Catholic Church, but God's revelation, believe in what Christ has done. It's the old contrast between do versus done. But I want you to understand, belief is a part of that process in many works religions. And many of them say, believe in Jesus, but you've got to help him out. You have to do these things. So, today what we want to do is look at the rest of the story. And so, Luther has made a transition. Uh, he has basically become, become born again. He has begun to see the gospel. And he goes from being a monk searching for salvation to a reformer who wants to make positive change in the Roman Catholic Church. And he begins to apply the gospel or the five solas, and it begins the dawn of a new age that we're still feeling it today. That's why you have Bibles on your tables. That's why uh, all those changes, we've talked about it. Here's what a student said about Luther. He was a man of middle stature with a voice which combined sharpness and softness. It was soft in tone, sharp in the enunciation of syllables, words, and sentences. He spoke neither too quickly nor too slowly, but at an even pace, without hesitation, and very clearly. If even the fiercest enemies of the gospel had been among his hearers, they would have confessed from the force of what they heard that they had witnessed not a man but a spirit. He was a powerful, passionate force. But if you would ask Luther, he would say, I did nothing. The word did everything. And so what we're going to see is seven ways in which Luther begins to respond. Because here's the reality. Any true believer who once discovers the good news 
cannot keep it to himself. They cannot keep it to himself. And so the first thing that Luther does in 1517 is Luther nails it. And we've kind of already talked about it. He hammers the 95 statements uh, for debate, which are called the 95 Theses, on the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg on All Saints' Eve, October 31st. Now, this is Joseph, the actor Joseph, Joseph Fines, great guy, great actor, uh, far better looking than Luther, okay? That's all I can say there. But I like this picture because it shows you Luther wasn't doing anything revolutionary or radical. It was the bulletin board. It was the blog. It was the digital bulletin board of its age. And so there's all, you know, everybody that had their, you know, things that they were wanting people to talk about or look at. And so he puts it up there. Now, let's talk about this a little bit. That The 95 Theses attacked the abuses of indulgences but not the proper practice of them. He's in a process. He's not yet, he's still basically a Roman Catholic. He still basically wants to support Roman Catholicism and the Pope. But he sees in the sale of indulgences something that doesn't line up with Scripture. And so he's starting to reform. Here's the three key words to kind of help you. If you don't come from a Roman Catholic background, it helps to know what these words mean. It was all about the, the uh, sacrament of penance. And penance is one of the seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church that dealt specifically with confession and satisfaction for sins, which was then administered to you by the priest. Now, the seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church are basically seven rituals that the church used to rule over the lives of its members from cradle to grave. There was a ritual. Uh, you would be baptized as an infant. You, had, you weren't born again. You didn't know what was going on with you. But if you didn't get baptized and you died, you would be in mortal danger. And so the rituals would just take you through your life. And then at the end of your life, there would be the anointing of the sick, the sick or the unction of the, uh, unction of the dead, which was intended to, hey, maybe with your sickness you haven't confessed everything, and so this kind of gets you covered here right before you die. All right? Because remember, you have to keep confessing. You've got to keep doing these things. They literally ruled over your life from cradle to grave. Now, what were indulgences? Indulgences were documents prepared by the church to sell to individuals either for themselves or on behalf of the dead. And when you bought an indulgence, the living purchaser or the dead loved one would be released from purgatory for a certain number of years. And, uh, for instance, the more relics you would see, each relic had a certain number of years. And so if you'd see the dead bones of Peter or if you saw a, a, a piece of wood from Jesus' cross, that was a certain number of years. And the more you saw and the more indulgences you bought, which were simply a piece of paper saying that you had done that, the more years off of purgatory. The point was you never knew how long you were going to be in purgatory. So even if you got a thousand years off, the odds are you're going to be there for thousands of years more. So... Uh, well, I, I, and let me just say this. Literally, here's what the priests would teach in that day. 
They would say you need to confess your sins, say what your sin is. You need to be contrite. You need to show you're sorry for your sin. And then third, you need to contribute. You need to pay so that you get years off. Now, you know human nature and human greed. Eventually, the confession and the contrition just came down to a what? A contribution. It's a done deal. Give us the money, you get the paper, it's a done deal. Okay? Now, because of greed and a desire to build the Vatican that exists today, St. Peter's Basilica, Pope Leo X uh, uh, created a or issued a total indulgence. Now, this was a, this was, if you were a Roman Catholic in that day, this is an awesome opportunity. They weren't given very often. An indulgence that would release a person from purgatory altogether. Now, why would that not be given often? Why would you not want to give a get out of free, get out of jail card, you know, want completely? Yes, it would put the Pope out of business. It would put the indulgence sales, you know, I, I, I don't need to buy anymore. I, got, I bought the big one. I got the total indulgence, you know. So they could do it periodically, and then as people died off, you know, they could issue it again, okay? And, 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 and please understand, I am, I am in no way making this more crass than what it was. In fact, it's probably impossible for us sitting here in this wonderful room in Western uh, civilization, in North America, in American evangelicalism, to even understand just how corrupt and how crass this really was. So, here's was the idea. A total indulgence meant sins were forgiven before they had been committed, before they had been confessed, and before any penance had been done. You know, you're, you're out. You're, you're, you're out of purgatory. So, you, you don't have to worry about your sins anymore. And so, what was happening was a indulgence. So, these priests would be issued or... or um, uh, designated as sellers of indulgence. And so Frederick, the prince that was over the area where Martin lived, refused to let these indulgences be sold in his territory. Why was that? Because he was selling his own. You know, it's territorial here. I got a business here. You can do your business over here. And so the seller was a guy by the name of Tetzel, and he's selling in another territory that's right next to where Luther uh, ministered as a, as a monk and as a priest. And what, peop- what his people were doing is they were crossing, you know, it used to be like when you had to go over to Kansas to buy your liquor. Well, I don't know anything about that, but I heard about it. And you had to, you had to go over to Kansas because, you know, we didn't sell it here in Missouri. Well, that's what they were doing. They would go over and buy an indulgence and then bring it back to Luther and said, I'm okay. I'm okay. And he says, what do you mean you're okay? I got a total indulgence. Wow. And so Tetzel was famous. He would really talk about the flames of death. He would play on the fears and the love of loved ones for their for their. Uh, departed loved ones in purgatory and he'd say you know can you hear your grandmother crying to you can you hear your father crying to you and he would play up these fears of hell and torment and he would end his sermons with this famous phrase once the coin in the coffer rings a soul from purgatory springs 
And you tell you, in that day and age, if you knew a loved one and you knew all your loved ones who were believers were in purgatory suffering, what would you pay? What would you pay to get your mother out of the torments of fiery, the fiery wrath of God in purgatory? And But what people heard was purchase forgiveness of your sins. Buy your way out of purgatory. Pay without having to bother with true repentance. And that's really what his complaint was. He said, look, you can't find this in Scripture, number one. Number two, what you find in Scripture is repentance. And it's a life of repentance. It's not something you pay and then you don't have to do anymore. It's a continual life of acknowledging I fall short of God. I need to turn from my sins, confess my sins, and receive forgiveness. And so these are the things that Luther does. Now, Luther nails this in Latin, but people quickly take it down and they translate it in German and they use the newly invented Gutenberg Press to publish this and it sets off a firestorm. And Luther himself begins to publish his beliefs. He publishes his convictions with the aid of the new invention of the Gutenberg Press. And back in 2003, when I was just that studly dude there, uh, we took a team of people, and that is the Gutenberg Museum. That's a replica of the printing press, a huge monstrosity. But what the Gutenberg Press was to the 1500s, or actually it was invented in the 1400s, what it was to the 14 and 1500s is what the Internet is today. It just explodes uh, on, onto, the, onto the scene. And so here's what one church historian says about the printing press. The printing press was crucial. For the first time in history, news and ideas can be transmitted in a stable form across vast areas of land throughout populations. Of course, most people could not read, but Reformation pamphlets often had graphic sometimes even pornographic, woodcuts, which communicated even to the illiterate who were the good guys and who were the bad. Thus, we have the possibility of a mass movement and of the, revi- the arrival of popular opinion. Hey, I believe this, I don't believe that. I like this guy, I don't like that guy. Cheap print also fueled the rise of literacy, which was to be vital to the spread and the establishment of Protestantism. Now, God in his sovereignty brings the printing press at the same time that he's unleashing the Reformation and the translation of the Bible into the common tongue. And when you get translation into common language and the ability of the printing press to publish it, you have an explosion of the Word of God. Amen? God is sovereign over history, and he's working these events to spread the gospel. Now, here's what Luther does. Let me, uh, those legs are freaking you out, so let me just talk to you a little bit. Luther publishes three documents, and with the printing press, he spreads it. Now, I I don't want to get deep into this, but these three documents are really important because basically, with these three documents, he dismantles the Roman Catholic Church. He becomes an absolute threat to the Pope because the first one was called the Address 
to Christian nobility of the German nation. And it directly attacked the hierarchy and the authority of the Roman Catholic Church. In other words, the Pope, the bishops, the priests, he attacks that. And what he affirms instead is what the Bible teaches, that every believer is his own mediator, that Christ is the only mediator, and we are believer priests that can come into the presence of God via Jesus Christ and no human mediator. And we also, as believer priests, don't have to depend on a pastor or a priest to interpret the Bible for us. If we can just get the Bible in a language that we can understand, we can read it, we can interpret it, God can speak to our hearts, we can speak to God in prayer, and we can do that on our own. Christ alone is the mediator, Scripture alone, with no one having to tell us what to believe or adding to the scriptures. So you see the the solas are coming to to bear. But I don't want you to leave here thinking the reformers had it all down. Exactly. Because they needed to be more radical in their reformation. And in this letter that he writes, or this this, uh, pamphlet, he gave too much authority to the state over the church. So he wanted to bring down the pope, but... He had state and church two linked together, and he brought up the authority of the prince to control the church. Well, guess what? Whether it's a pope or a president, there's only one head of the church, and who is that? Jesus Christ. Okay? So we don't want to replace one pope with another pope, even our pastors, right? And so Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Third, The second book or pamphlet that he wrote, was called The Babylonian Captivity of the Church. The title comes from Luther's conviction that Christians had been carried away into Babylonian captivity, just like Israel had been, due to the Pope. Uh, The Popes had led the church into captivity. And this pamphlet attacked the sacrament. So first you attack the rulers of the church, now you're attacking the rituals of the church. Because if you're going to be a priest, you've got to have rituals to manipulate and control people. They go together. Rituals need priests. Priests need rituals. Okay? So he attacks the seven sacraments. All right? And, uh, you know, those are baptism, confirmation, mass, penance, marriage, holy orders where you become a priest, and then extreme unction at death. He looked at the Bible and said, now, where can I find these? And the only two that he could find in Scripture were baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so those are the two ordinances that he affirmed. The problem is he still needed to be a radical reformer because he didn't fully ultimately embrace believers' baptism. Baptism for believers only. You don't baptize babies because why? They can't believe. They can't believe. They don't know they're sinners. They can't understand the gospel. They can't accept Christ. And the only people who are baptized in the New Testament are people who are baptized on the right side of salvation. Always baptized after a profession of faith. Now, here's the, here's the, the funny thing about Luther, who led to, who, whose followers became Lutherans, Calvin, whose followers became Presbyterians, all these men were men of the book, and they were godly men. They were good men. They were born-again men. 
They were men of the book, and they knew that believers' baptism by immersion, by not by sprinkling, but by full immersion, going under the water, buried in the likeness of his death, raised in the likeness of his resurrection. They knew this was the New Testament practice, but they were still so tied to their Roman Catholic roots that they just couldn't really reform. It was left to the radical reformers who became, uh, who, who grandchildren became Baptists. It was left to them to do that. In fact, regarding baptism, listen to this. Luther, at this time, when he wrote this, this document, believed the primitive mode was immersion and even immersed his firstborn son. But ultimately, the church, the, nearly all Protestant churches have fall, they've fallen back and fallen back into the practice of infant baptism. And Luther was also a little wacky on the Lord's Supper. Well, I won't give you any more details on that. That's the idea. The third document was this, on the freedom of the Christian man. Now, this is, this is a great pamphlet. It's an open letter that he sends to Pope Leo X. And here's what he says to Pope Leo. He says, I'm a poor man, and I have no other gift to offer. So everybody was used to influencing the Pope uh, with money. And he says, no, I want to influence you with the word of God. I think of Peter and John as they saw the beggar by the temple. And he's begging for money. And he says, they say to him, gold and silver, I have none. But what I do have, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ. And that's really what Luther is saying. He's saying, Pope, great guy, rich guy, but here's the reality. You need the gospel. You need the gospel. And so here's where he attacked the theology of the Roman Catholic Church. So here's what I want you to realize. Once you've done this, you've totally dismantled the Roman Catholic Church. He affirmed justification by faith and the priesthood of believers, but he still needed that extra radical reformation and apply Christian freedom to the idea that has been a Baptist doctrine, and that is soul liberty, that you can't force people to believe. That you as a president, a congress, a supreme court, a king or a prince cannot declare. In, this, in these days, you could literally go to sleep and your country would be Roman Catholic and you could wake up the next morning and it would be Protestant And if you were a Catholic, you would be burned at the stake. I mean, you could literally go to sleep. And and what happened was, whatever the prince became, that's what the nation became. Because state and church had been so locked together. Well, needless to say, uh, the Pope was not too happy. And so he excommunicated Luther. And yet, the most dangerous threat in all of history is a common man with a common Bible committed to an uncommon cause. So... He gets excommunicated. Oh, by the way, these are just some of the fun little uh, uh, pamphlets that were sent. For some reason in that day and age, life was earthy and down to earth, and passing gas was just something that you talked about, joked about, and did a lot of. You can kind of figure out what's going there. There's the Pope. There's the Reformers. But the Catholics had their own documents. Here's Luther as the seven-headed beast and the Antichrist. So it was quite, you know... If you were an artist in those days, you could have a lot of fun with that. But Luther stands for it. So he's excommunicated. The Pope 
excommunicates him, and the prince of or the emperor of the empire, because state and church are co-joined, the emperor calls Luther to recant his beliefs and recant especially his 95 theses and these three pamphlets that he wrote. And Luther refuses to change his beliefs. He refuses to recant. And when summoned by the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire to the city of, in, in German it's Worms, but I'm not going to pretend I'm German because I'm not, so we'll just call it Worms. For an imperial diet, literally diet, which is just a, a council. You're in trouble, okay? It's like being called in front of the Congress for uh, uh, these investigations. And Luther says, look, I cannot recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. This is the church he was called to. And if you ever have the opportunity to stand at that church and think, here's one man, Luther, and the Pope has excommunicated him. The emperor is there, and he enters this place, and he's going against everything and everybody. We think we have a hard time, right? We talk, Emmanuel talked about persecution. We think we have a hard time standing up. There was no one believing this stuff. And if this did not go well, he's going to be burned, beheaded or burned at the stake. And so here's our team inside that church. And in reality, it didn't take place inside the church. It actually take, took place in an imperial palace that is now where this garden stands. And so the building is gone and all that's left there is a plaque. So here's this humongous Catholic church that still stands there. And yet there's this little plaque that here is where Luther stood before the emperor and before the, uh, the, the imperial council. Only a small plaque remains. Now, let me show you. I want to show you a clip from the movie, movie Luther of, uh, of this taking place. So, if you, Todd, if you can get the lights, let's take a look at it. This is a great movie, by the way. I'm sorry, I was supposed to give you more time on that one. They'll burn him for sure. That's his spiritual Do you, Martin Luther, recognize these books? The 95 Theses, A Sermon on Indulgence and Grace. The Babylonian Captivity, Freedom of a Christian. Address to the Christian nobility of the German nation. Are you the author? All of mine. These books contain heresies against our holy church. Do you recant what you've written? I... I was... Speak up! 
Yeah, I have time to consider. You've had the time. And you should have been prepared to answer. I would like to answer satisfactorily. Without injury to the divine word or danger to my soul. Any one of us might be expected to bear witness unequivocally and fearlessly at any time. All the more in your case, a famous, experienced professor of theology. <laughs> we grant you one day. Tomorrow you shall answer. You go back to hell! Shh, 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 shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up! I feel your foul breath on my neck. Happy devil you are to see me mute. Shaking, shaking, shaking like an animal at the slaughter. Where? Oh, yes. Where's his fate now? Where's his fate now? Where's his posting now? Where's his posting now? Where's his posting now? Martin Luther, are you the author of these writings? I am. Do you recant what you have written here? I cannot renounce all of my works because they are not all the same. First are those books in which I have described Christian faith and life so simply that even my opponents have admitted that these works are useful. To renounce these writings would be unthinkable, for that would be to renounce accepted Christian truths. He is not here to make speeches, only to answer. The second group of my work is directed against the foul doctrine and evil living of the popes, past and present. No! Through the laws of the pope and the doctrines of men, the consciences of the faithful have been miserably vexed and flayed. If I recant these books, I will do nothing but add strength to tyranny and open not just the windows but also the doors to this great ungodliness. He has condemned himself. In the third group, I have written against private persons and individuals who uphold Roman tyranny and have attacked my own efforts to encourage piety to Christ. I confess that I've written too harshly. 
I am but a man and I can err. Only let my errors be proven by scripture. And I will revoke my work and throw my books into the fire. You have not answered the question. You, Martin Luther, will not draw into doubt those things which the Catholic Church has judged already. Things that have passed into usage, rite, and observance. The faith that Christ, the most perfect lawgiver, ordained. The faith the martyrs strengthened with their blood. You wait in vain for a disputation over things that you are obligated to believe. Now give your answer. Yes or no. Will you recant or will you not? Since your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply, I will answer. Unless I am convinced by scripture and by plain reason, and not by popes and councils who have so often contradicted themselves, my conscience is captive to the word of God. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. I cannot. And I will not. Recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Yes, Is that powerful or what? It is. That is, that is just what felt. That is just powerful stuff. Powerful stuff. Um, so, with doing that, he's in danger of being. They had promised him safe. Uh, they had promised him uh, safe passage, but in reality, uh, they were going to kidnap him, capture him, and take him and. Uh, and kill him. But his prince, Frederick, liked him and liked the fact that he was one of his uh, citizens in his, uh, in his territory and he's, he was the prize professor of the university that the prince had started there in Wittenberg. And so he, without telling Luther, he has a group of men kidnap Luther, throw a, uh, a, a uh, what, yeah, thing over his head, 
and they kidnap him and take him to the Wartburg Castle. And he grows his monk hair out, and he grows a beard, and he takes on the name of Prince George. He's just an ordinary man. And he hides out in the Wartburg Castle so that the Pope and his enemies... Because basically, after he said, here I stand, I can do no other, after that point... He was under ban, and, uh, and there was a death penalty on him. And if you uh, would capture him, you would get a reward, and you would be uh, um, rewarded for that. So what does a guy do when you're head out in the Wartburg Castle? In an amazing 11 weeks, he translates the New Testament into the German language, for the common man. He translated at a rate of more than 1,500 words a day. Now, this is just amazing because not only did he give the German people a Bible in their own language, but he set the standard for the German language. He united the German language. It had never been united. They had all these dialects. And he even influenced Tyndale in the English Bible. The Bible you're still reading today ESV, NAS, uh, King James, New King James, has all been influenced directly by what Luther did in that Wartburg Castle. Now, here we are outside of the castle, and there we are in Luther's room where he translated the New Testament. And uh, he famously threw an inkwell at the wall uh, because he was always battling the devil, as you saw in the film. Now, it's just an amazing room to be in. This is his footstool, and probably mo- and it's actually the, like one of the few things in that room that's literally from when he was there. His feet rested on that. That's a whale vertebrae. Uh, now, I don't know why you would use a whale vertebrae in the middle of Germany as your footstool, but Luther did, and that was his footstool as he rested his feet and translated the New Testament. Well, Luther continues to apply Uh, the freedom of the gospel, and he marries a nun. Uh, Twelve nuns escaped uh, their nunnery, and Luther knew they needed help, and so he sent a fishmonger, a a fisherman, businessman, who dealt in herrings, and these nuns hid out in herring barrels. Now, you know, you would think that they might have trouble getting married after, uh, uh, you know, hiding out in a fish bear. It makes me think of The Hobbit. The nuns successfully escaped by hiding in the covered wagon among the fish and fled to Wittenberg. A local student wrote to a friend, a, wag- a wagon load of vestal virgins has just came to town. Yeah, All the more eager for marriage than for life. God grant them husbands less worst. Worse befalls. Well, within two years, Luther was able to arrange everybody a, 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 wife, a husband except Katharina uh, von Boren and uh, von Bora, and she really had her eye on Luther, and so she was holding out for him. And finally, Luther does marry her. She was 26; he was 41. Uh, his friends were against it, thinking it would bring disgrace to the Reformation. But Luther said no. I think it's good for uh, multiple reasons. First of all, the marriage would please my father. It would upset the Pope. 
and would cause angels to laugh and devils to weep. I'm marrying her. And so he married Katharina. He had nicknames for her, Kitty My Rib, My Better Half, My Lord Kate, Dr. Catherine, and then Ketty, which in German means, it was a play on her name, Ketty in German means chain. <laughs> so these guys, they just, you know, and she gave it right back to him. Uh, one time they were at dinner, and Luther remarked, The time will come when a man will take more than one wife. Catherine responds, Let the devil believe that. To which Luther answers, The reason, Katie, is that a woman can bear a child only once a year, while her husband can begat many. Hmm, okay. Undismayed, Catherine cited 1 Corinthians 7-2. You know, hey, I'll give you a little Bible back at you, professor boy. Paul said that each man should have his own wife. Luther quipped, yes, his own wife, not only one wife. for For the latter isn't what Paul wrote. The jesting continued for a little while longer until Catherine won the day by saying, Before I put up with this polygamy, I'd rather go back to the convent and leave you and all our children. And so he said, Okay, I I, I don't want to do that. They had six kids. Several died early. Uh, One died at eight months. One died at 13 years of their six children. Uh, She suffered a miscarriage. And the Luthers also raised four orphan children and opened their home to students. And uh, they really created or recreated the Christian home. And, of course, Luther sings it in 1527, we think. He writes one of the greatest hymns, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. He also wrote the Christmas carol, Away in the Manger. But at the end of his life, Luther blows it. And the thing about church history and what I like about church history is to talk about not just... We don't want to turn these people into cardboard saints. They, they, they had feet of clay. They were sinners just like us. And at the end of his years, unfortunately, he became very anti-Semitic and went against the Jews. And there were several reasons for that. Part of it was because Reformed theology thinks that the Jews have been forever set aside and been replaced by a church, and that theology leads to anti-Semitism. And unfortunately, Reformed theologians still believe that today, and it can still lead, doesn't not automatically, but it can still lead to anti-Semitism. And also, he was frustrated. He wanted to lead them to Christ, but they weren't coming to Christ. He needed to think about Romans 9 through 11, which explains why. Jews don't in mass come to Christ yet. And then the bottom line is, he became a crusty old man. And this happens a lot with God's people, both men and women. He had a lot of health problems. He didn't have a Walgreens down the street. He had issues uh, from the head, from his head to his feet. And when you get, when you don't feel good, you get grumpy. And when you get grumpy, you say and do things that you will eventually regret. And so that's what happened. Now, is the Reformation over? No. The Catholic Church still teaches what Luther has, was protesting. They may not practice it all in exactly the same way, but the official teaching of the Catholic Church has not been rescinded. And no, many Protestant churches have stopped short of a radical Reformation. They still baptize infants which is a leftover from the state church and from Roman Catholicism. And yet, I'm not saying that Baptists 
And those who practice believer's baptism don't need reformation either. Baptists and other churches that practice believer's baptism still need to realign with Christ's word and spirit. The bottom line is we need to listen to the risen Christ in Revelation 2 and 3 who says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We need to always be reformed according to the Word of God. And so we're going to transition in to the doctrines that will reform and keep us where we need to be as a church. Amen? So I hope this inspires you. It always does me, as you can tell. But I hope it reminds you that you make a difference in an open Bible leads to an open heart, and that leads to open doors in reaching people. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the life of Martin Luther, the warts and everything involved in it. But Lord, we stand in our place in history, and we have the Word of God, and we have the opportunity to get it in the Mokonde language, in language of the unreached, We have the opportunity to pray for our missionaries that are going around the world with the light of the gospel in dark places. But, Lord, it's still dark right here in Kansas City. And so, Father, let us go forth this week knowing that people are asking, what must I do to be saved? And we have the answer, not because we're better, but because we are beggars of bread that God gives freely to those who will just believe the gospel. Lord, let us open our hearts, open our mouths, and boldly share what good news there is in the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.